As we say, we've got to actually define this, uh, this piece. And what we're going to suggest is that the piece that we are offered, and which we should have, ruling in our lives non-stop, is actually something spiritual. It's, as Romans 5.1 says, if justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So then peace is peace with God. And we're going to go through now a number of passages which show that peace is related to the forgiveness of our sins. Isaiah 53, Christ is wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, our sins. And then that's like a parallelism, as you often get in, in Hebrew. You've got three parallel statements. Wounded for our transgressions, bruised for iniquities, chastised for our peace. So then our peace is the forgiveness of sin. That seems to be quite clear. In Isaiah 32 it says, The effect of righteousness shall be peace. God says, There is no peace to the wicked. By implication to the righteous, those who are not sinning, there is peace. Now, let's have a look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2, where you've got quite a lot of uh, information about peace, and we'll be referring to this quite a bit. Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll look at verse 14. Okay, it talks about Jesus, verse 13. Uh, In Christ we are made nigh to God by the blood of Christ because he is our peace. Verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments. Verse 16, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you that were far off. Verse 18, for through him, Because we have this peace, we have access by one spirit unto the Father. And so there he's definitely associating peace with the abolition of this enmity, this alienation between us and God, and this spiritual unity that we can have between us and the Father. So when you see a beautiful sunset or whatever, you can say, oh, well, I I feel peace. You can say, I like going to this river because it's very peaceful. And yet that's a kind of an emotional peace. And if that's what we're looking for out of the truth, we're not going to get it. Because Christ has told us he didn't come to send peace in that sense. He came to send grief, pain of all sorts. And we all know that from our own lives. And there's no way that we're going to somehow find some magic solution that just gets rid of all that pain. That lack of peace. But the emphasis of the scriptures is on the peace that comes from being able to pray to God, to look at that sunset and to see the God that is above, to see the God that is beyond that peaceful scene, and to know that there is absolutely nothing between you and that God. Now, the Hebrew word for peace is uh, shalom. And as you probably know, that, that's the usual Hebrew greeting, even today. So as you walk down the street, you say, hey, shalom. The other guy calls back, yeah, shalom, peace to you. And if I were writing a letter to you, if I were Hebrew, I'd start off writing something like, shalom to you, peace to you, from Duncan. 
and I might end my letter saying Shalom from Duncan. And so when you read throughout the New Testament letters, they start off, Peace, Shalom, to you, from God. Now, that was something quite radical to the, to the New Testament uh, mind, to actually read a letter that starts off by saying, Shalom, from God, and a letter that ends, Shalom, from God. In other words, we're being invited to have the peace from God. And that's really something quite uh, incredible. Peace with God. Incidentally, Jesus said, and we looked at it on the overhead, um, he said, My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives peace, 1427. And as you, you might be aware, in, the, in John's Gospel, the world there is normally talking about the Jewish world. So Jesus is saying, My shalom I give to you, not as the Jewish world gives, gives you shalom, as, as they walk down the street calling out shalom to you over the, over the, across the street. He's saying, I'm giving you my shalom, not, not as this Jewish world calls it out to you many times a day. That's just a little point in passing. Now, this word peace, then, fundamentally refers to the peace that we should have um, with, between us and, uh, and God. I've got a bit out of order here. Anyway, the word peace that you get in the New Testament, this Greek word, basically means to set two people at one again. And you saw in Ephesians how it's related to this finishing of any enmity between us and God. So in Acts 7.26, Moses set them at one again. And that's this set them at one, is this, uh, this word for peace. The idea of putting two opposing parties together. After Saul stopped persecuting the Christians, they had the churches rest. And that's uh, the same word as peace. In other words, it was a, a cessation, a finishing of, uh, of aggression and of uh, two parties being opposed to each other. So that's what the, the biblical word for peace means. And the Hebrew word is, is, has the same idea. The ending of a conflict. For example, blessed are the peacemakers. It doesn't mean blessed are the people who make beautiful scenery that makes you feel at peace. Blessed are the peacemakers who reconcile people. And so that's the difference between peace as the world thinks about peace and the peace that God offers. The peace that God offers is this reconciliation between us and God, this unity between us and God, this finishing of any, anything that we feel is between us and, and the Almighty. And that's, that's very different to the idea of peace, as in, you know, you go to a, I don't know, a beautiful river or something and say, isn't that beautiful? It gives me a feeling of peace. Right? That is not what the word, that the Hebrew and the Greek words for peace indicate. They are all associated with this idea of finishing conflict. Now, I think we need to understand or appreciate more the wrath of God against sin before we can understand this, uh, this peace. David said in Psalm 38, verse 3, he says, There is no peace in my bones because of my sin. 
so God is angry with sin and I think personally we, we've gone a bit too far in this idea of God being a God of love we've reacted very strongly against this wrong idea in the orthodox churches that God's an angry old man up in the sky who's sort of angry against sin well okay that's a bit of a childish way to put it the fact is though that God is angry against sin and God is really serious about his principles he doesn't just wave them like a sort of good natured school teacher might let a let a pupil off for doing something wrong God doesn't say well don't worry about it but don't do it again sort of thing God is actually angry with sin and we mustn't forget that I'd like us to look at Psalm 107 where we read about the the wrath of God and the, the trouble and anguish that comes because of sin Psalm 107 verses 17 to 19 Psalm 107 17 to 19 Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, are afflicted. They draw near to the gates of death. 19. Then they cry unto Yahweh in their trouble, and he saveth them out of their distresses. And then he gives a little mini parable to explain what he means. If you go down to verse 27, he says, he's talking about people in, in trouble on the sea. He says, they reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man. They are at their wit's end. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble. And he brings them out of their distress. So you see verse 19, there's a kind of parallel there. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble and he saves them out of their distress. And we saw their distress was their, their sin. Here in this little parable later on, he talks about sailors on the sea. They cry unto God in their trouble and he saves them out of their distress, out of the storm on their lake. He makes the storm a calm so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad because they be quiet. So he bringeth them unto their desired haven. That's obviously also a prophecy of uh, the work of the Lord Jesus. When he cured that, uh, sorry, when he uh, calmed that storm on Galilee. If you see kind of what I mean, without being too school teacherly about it. Um, he's saying verse 17 to, uh, to 19. Let's go through it again. Sinners are afflicted, and they have this distress, and they cry unto God in their trouble, and he saves them out of their distress, out of their, their sins. Then there's a parallel, verse 27-28, he's talking about these sailors, see verse 25, there's a stormy wind which lifts up the waves, verse 23, those who go down to the sea in ships, they, they have these great storms in their, in their experience, and then 28, they cry unto the Lord in their trouble and he brings them out of their distresses which is quoting from verse 19 about how sinners cry unto God and he saves them out of their distress and then he makes the storm a calm so the waves thereof are still and as we've said that is pointing forward to the work of Jesus when he was uh, in the storm and the disciples were so frightened in other words those disciples in that fishing boat as they were swamped by those waves is pointing forward or is symbolic of how we are as it were swamped by our sins and by our own feeling of inadequacy spiritually and then we cry unto God desperately for forgiveness and then there is Christ standing up there serene in our midst and the waves are calmed and we have this great spiritual peace okay so then we've shown that peace is largely related to forgiveness and having one being one with God and if we can really uh, 
if we can really believe that our sins are forgiven, then that really is a key factor, I, I believe, in us having this peace which will actually keep us at all times. Now, we're told in several times in the Old Testament that the New Covenant is a covenant of peace. A covenant of peace. God says, for example, in Ezekiel 37, 26, he says to Israel, he said, I will make with you a new covenant, even a covenant of peace. Now, we know that we are under the new covenant. And that means that our sins are forgiven. Just briefly look over at Hebrews 8, um, where Paul's here talking about what it means to be under the new covenant. Hebrews 8, um, 11 and 12. Oh, sorry, 12. He says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. He says, this is, verse 13, this is part of the new covenant. So the Old Testament says the new covenant is a covenant of peace. New Testament says you're under the new covenant, and the new covenant is the covenant of forgiveness of your sins. So again, you can see peace defined as forgiveness of sin. Now, if we are in covenant relationship with God, if we're in covenant relationship, that's not something that we just have you know, in for five minutes and then we're out of covenant for ten minutes and back in for five minutes. No, it's something we actually live in. So, we live in that covenant of peace and mercy. Now, we don't um, just experience mercy from God, say in the, the two minutes when we pray to God for forgiveness, please forgive me, and then, okay, God gives us mercy for two minutes kind of thing, or however long we pray for. No, we're living in that covenant of mercy. Now, we know our relationship with God is, is typified by, by the marriage relationship, and there you are, you can be married, Mr. and Mrs. Bloggs, or, or whatever, um, Mrs. Smith or whatever it might be and in the, in the middle of all your veils or whatever, well she's still Mrs. Smith or Mrs. Heaster or whatever um, in the middle of, of your worst veil okay, you can, eventually people can split apart and divorce but in the middle of it she's still Mrs. Mrs. Heaster or whatever in the middle of the veil and so I think that's to some degree what covenant relationship with God is like, we're in that covenant of mercy and he looks at us in a certain way. And that's why this peace with God is something which is, which is permanent, which is really ongoing. Unless we break the covenant. And we can break covenant, unfortunately. Now, in the wilderness, there were Israel trudging through that desert, similar to how we're sort of trudging through this life. And every step of the way, whenever they started off on a new part of their journey, they, Moses said these words to them The Lord bless thee and keep thee The Lord make his face to shine upon thee Be gracious unto thee The Lord give thee peace So the blessing of God The Lord bless thee Is the same as God giving you peace Okay And every step of their wilderness journey Israel were assured That they had this peace from God So what does it mean For God to bless us and you come to uh, Acts 3 and you get this defined. He quotes from the promise to Abraham that in his seed all the kindreds of the earth would be blessed. 
then he tells them what that means. He says, under you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. In other words, the blessing of God is the blessing of forgiveness of sins. That's why David in the Bathsheba psalm so often says, "Blessed is the man whose blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven." In other words, the blessing of God is what gives forgiveness. So, the blessing of God is peace with God. The blessing of God is forgiveness. Okay. So this is very, very strong, a strong theme. Now, we're emphasizing this point. You may think over-emphasizing it. But why I'm doing this is because we have to come down to this very basic question. A question which cuts through all the semantics of our Christadelphian lives, all our things we, we argue about within ourselves and amongst ourselves. It's a very basic question. And it's as follows. If Christ comes now, here, while we're sitting here, if Christ comes now, are you confident that you'll be in the kingdom 100%? I'll say that again. Forgive my schoolteacherly way. If Christ comes now, while you're sitting here, are you 100% confident that you will be in the kingdom? Of course, you can't say ultimately, yeah, I, I know I'm going to be in the kingdom because, I don't know, I might lose my faith tomorrow, I might throw it all away. So, okay, you can't say, I'm saved for all time. But can we answer this question? Am I 100% certain? And I believe the answer to that is yes. We should be in a position where we can say, I believe that by the grace of God, I will definitely be in the kingdom of God. Because when we're baptised into Christ, we're looked at by God as if, as if we are Jesus Christ. We're justified from our sins. We are counted as righteous. He looks at us as if, as if we are as righteous as Christ. You remember in, in Isaiah, time's going, going nowhere, but in Isaiah, I think it's about 62, there's uh, marvellous words where, where God says, as a young man desires to marry a virgin, so shall your God marry you. In other words, he's asking us to take a sort of an emotional snapshot of this imaginary young couple who are about to get married. This young lad, first timer, really sees everything he can in, the, in this woman as perfect as this girl. You know, he said, that's actually, as it were, how God looks at you. Not just, just as he's getting married, because we know that in human relationships there's a certain amount of entropy and it's all going to go downhill to some degree. But God is saying, that's actually how I look at you. That's how he actually sees us. He's not up in heaven and Christ is not up in heaven thinking, well, one day, second coming will come and, yeah, guess we'll have the kingdom. He's actually looking forward enthusiastically to us, to marrying us and to this permanent relationship with us. And so that is how much he loves us. And we are in prospect then, we have in prospect been, been saved in Christ. I'd like us to look at the first of John, the first letter of John. And we're going to look at a few verses, and uh, you may like to underline some of these phrases. I've not put these on the overhead because I only want us to look at these. And what I want
want to know is, if we can't be 100% confident of being in the kingdom, well, what do we make of these passages? There's a lot of them. Chapter 1, verse 3. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father. Truly. We are in fellowship with God. Go on to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 2. Now are we the sons of God. Verse 10. The children of God are manifest. Verse 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life. Not we hope we have, or we're hoping for the best, or whatever. We know that we have passed from death, from one state, unto life. That's another state. Verse 19. Hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. No, no uncertainty there. Verse 24. Hereby we know that he abideth in us. Sorry to keep driving the point home, but chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are of God. Verse 10. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. Finally, verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13. I have written this to you that you may know that you have eternal life that you may know that you have eternal life what do we do with all these verses if we say well I don't know if we're going to be in the kingdom of God we have to wait and see well no wait and see there that's absolutely clear that we should be in a position somehow to have this confidence well how do we do it there's no good thinking well I've done this that and the other or I've kept my nose clean as far as God's concerned for the last few weeks that's not the point because we're all together born in sin our whole nature's wrong right Romans 6 verse 11 Romans 6 verse 11 well it's not my overheads don't let me spell anyway Romans 6 11 I'm sure these words have read at your baptism as they were at mine wonder how much we understood them Reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, he says. That word reckon is the same word translated impute or count in the rest of Romans. And all the time in Romans, these early chapters, he's saying God is counting you righteous. He's reckoning you to be righteous because he's imputed the righteousness of Christ to you. And so he says, now you have got to count yourselves to be dead to sin. He says, now you're not serving sin. He says, you can't sin anymore. You're under, under grace, you're under the law. And yet all the time we're saying, but I do sin. Paul says here, you're free from sin, verse 18. You're free from sin. Verse 20, you were once the servants of sin, but you're not now. And we think, but I do sin. And I keep on doing the same old thing wrong. Day in, week in, week out. So how do we get around this? Well, I would suggest the way we get around it is to understand that when we're baptised, something is created. We're told we are born again. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, he's a new creature. So when we're baptised, something begins, a little baby begins inside us. And that spiritual man, let's call it the man Christ Jesus, because that's the biblical phrase for it, he grows stronger and stronger. 
yeah, we've got another man inside us. We don't know who that is. It's what the Bible calls the devil. This personification of sin. Like you've got this personification of righteousness called Jesus Christ inside you. So you've got these two people inside you. And they're battling. Battling with each other. And slowly, this man of the, of the Spirit is getting stronger and stronger. Second Corinthians 4, verse 16. Says, For which cause we faint not? Though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. And that's surely a great encouragement as we pass, we feel physically weak. Or as we grow older. But in fact, this inward man is getting stronger and stronger day by day, day by day. We're not drifting towards you know, the end of life. We're actually running towards this perfection of the inward man. It's getting stronger and stronger day by day as the outward man just gets weaker and weaker. There's so many examples in the scriptures, in the New Testament, of uh, these two people, as it were, inside us. I was going to give you lots of other examples. We, We don't have time. So then, God looks at us. God looks at this spiritual man that's inside us. That's how God looks at us. He looks at the man Christ Jesus that is inside us. And that is the sense in which we have been saved. Because we have this spiritual man inside us. We have to feed him every day from the word of God. We've got to strive and fight against this other side of our conscience. And yet we surely we're all well experienced in doing that. Surely we feel that, don't we, day by day, hour by hour at times. This, this conflict within ourselves, which is unbearable at times. And yet that is the great proof that in fact we are in Christ, that we do have this spiritual man inside us, and that that is the part that God is looking at. As with a sister, a long way from here and a long way from, uh, from Europe, um, a couple of months ago, she was married to this alcoholic, not a Christadelphian, and she was saying, well, he's always been like this. I remember him beating me up a couple of nights before we got married. This was... 15, 15 years ago and I said well why would you get married to him? sounds a bit of a silly question she said well you know what it's like I said well I don't actually because I'm not married but uh, she said you know what it's like she said you, you see the best thing in, in somebody you, you just sort of hope that they're actually going to, going to get better and you, you just see all the good side of them and this terrible black side you don't see it's a bit of a limited analogy because God doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. He doesn't just pretend it's not there. But I think there's an element of truth in that. That God looks at this inward man, not at the outward man. And if we really believe that, and if we really believe what those verses in John say, that this is how God sees us, and that yes, we can be assured of our salvation, then surely then there is this all joy and all peace through believing. Now, let's have a look at um, Romans uh, chapter 15. Sorry, excuse me, Romans 13, verse 12 and 13. Marvellous words, these are. Romans 13, verse 12. It says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. 
What is, what is the day? Well, it's the day of the kingdom, isn't it? Let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly, as in the day. As if we're in the day. What is the day in verse 13? It's the day of verse 12. The day of the kingdom. So he's saying, live now, as if. As if you're in the kingdom. Not that you are, but live now, as if you're in the kingdom. Because that is the confidence that, that we ought to have. We should be living the kingdom life now. So let's go on to Romans 15, verse 13. Romans 15, verse 13. It says, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy, put a little box around that word, all joy and peace in believing, that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, if we really believe these things, if we really believe that we're in covenant relationship with God, if we really believe that Christ did die on the cross for our sins, and that, yes, our sins are forgiven, and that there is actually nothing between us and God, then we can really have all joy and all peace in believing. And therefore, he says, you can abound in those things. Remember the, the preaching week some years ago, we, we did a study on this. And we looked at this, this word abound and we thought, what does this mean in the Greek? And it means to absolutely bounce up and down, like you might have seen these high bouncy balls that the, the kids have. And we actually bought some to, to make the point. People bouncing these balls up and down. I'm sure you've seen them, these high impact rubber balls that bounce really, really violently. And, and that, is, uh, that is the idea of that word, that you may abound in hope. If you've really got all joy and peace, it's something which you can really have, Paul says, through believing. So it seems to me that we've almost got to go back to our Bible basics, as it were. Are we really in Christ? Do you know that you're in Christ? Christadelphians, brother in Christ. Are we in Christ? Because if you're in Christ, then God is going to look at you as if you are Jesus Christ. Then there's this joy and peace that whatever happens now, you know that you're going to be in the kingdom. You know, you know, you are sure that you have this relationship with God. Now, okay, God is closer sometimes than he is at others. Doesn't, that's not necessarily proportionate to our sin. You remember on the cross, Christ said, My God, why have you forsaken me? Doesn't mean he'd sinned. He just, God was a bit distant from him. Same with Job. But this is, uh, this is the, the basic thesis, I suppose, that, that, I, that I'm putting to you. That by being in Christ, we have these two people inside us. God looks at this positive man inside us. And as long as we're striving to be led by the Spirit and to overcome this man of the flesh, even though okay, ultimately the flesh can only be destroyed by death, yet this is the way to true peace with God. But okay, coming back down to earth, so you're married and you've got your five children, and then redundancy, Wednesday morning or whatever. Does all this go out the window? How does all this stuff relate to that situation? Right. We should, quite rightly, live for other people. We shouldn't be going around thinking number one all the time. Yes, we should be caught up with what are we going to do for the wife and the children? How are we going to pay the mortgage? Where are we going to live? What am I going to do? Of course, that's natural. But first and foremost, for that brother or sister, whoever it might be, concerned, you've got to go right back to basics. Me. 
and God. Am I in Christ? Yes. Am I going to be in the kingdom of God? Do I have anything between me and God? Do I have this open access to God, which we saw in Romans is the def- one of the definitions of, of peace? If you can say yes, I believe. I believe. Okay, help my unbelief, but I believe that. Right, then you can go from there. Okay. How are we going to get over these problems? I've got to worry about this, that and the other. Mortgage, where are we going to live, etc, etc, etc. But I think we can shy away from our very personal relationship with God. And in a sense, that's a running away from your own personality. That's getting so far away from yourself that you can only you don't bother thinking about your own relationship with God. You're only thinking about other people, etc., etc. And you can kid yourself that that's all being very Christian. First of all, God has called us. And we're each going to stand in the day of judgment on our own. Absolutely alone. And in a sense, our relationship with Christ and the Kingdom, I think, is something completely personal, to some degree. Something that your children and your partner or whatever are not going to enter into, to some degree. It's a name written, it says in Revelation, that no man knows, apart from you, the one who it's given to. And so that's, as I see it, the thing to do, to come back to basics, our own personal relationship with God, and to rejoice in the fact that there is no separation between us and God. Now, I'd like, to, I'd like us to uh, briefly look at 2 Peter 3, verse 14. 2 Peter 3, verse 14. He says, Be diligent, that you may be found of him, that's Christ, in peace, without spot, and blameless. It doesn't mean that if Christ comes in the middle of, say, you moving house or something like that, doesn't mean, well, that's hard luck, you've lost the kingdom. No. Be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. Now, by being in Christ, we're without spot. By being in Christ, we're told in Colossians, we are without blame. By being in Christ, we are in peace. So therefore, our peace and our blamelessness before God now is the same peace that we're going to have at the day of judgment, at the coming of Christ. In other words, the feeling, the relationship that we have with Christ now is not going to suddenly change when he comes and there we are face to face. It's the two things are related. And that's the urgency of, of living in peace with God now. Because if you're not in peace with God now, you won't be with, in peace with him then. We could show a long list of verses which associate peace with the kingdom of God. We're going to be reading a lot of them in Isaiah in our readings in the next uh, few weeks. But the kingdom of God is really the time for peace. And yet peace is offered to us here and now. And I think that perhaps we've... We've gone too far in in shying away from this idea of of having uh, any kind of confidence of being in the kingdom. It isn't all jam tomorrow. Okay, you've got problems now. Well, in a sense, we're quite right to say, okay, you've got problems now. You've got to grin and whatever and and bear it. And in the kingdom, yeah, okay, it'll it'll all come true. It'll all be sorted out in the kingdom. Well, okay, that's true. That's true to some degree. And yet, as we say, it isn't all jam tomorrow. There is a sense in which here and now we are in Christ and here and now we can know that we've got eternal life in the sense that 
we are confident if Christ comes now, we will be in the kingdom of God. So, as I say, it comes back to Bible basics. Do we really believe that God sees us as without spot, as absolutely blameless? Difficult to believe that, isn't it? And yet it is possible, it is possible to have that level of belief. And especially what makes that possible is the tremendous association which there is between the sufferings of Christ on the cross and, and our peace. And we saw in Isaiah 53 that um, the chastisement of our peace was upon him on the cross. But he made peace with us, as it says here in Colossians 1, having made peace through the blood of his cross to reconcile all things unto himself. And so as we behold the cross of Christ, as we look at him, and as we see him suffering there, and as we see the outpouring of, of his love toward us, as we see the love of God and the love of Christ personally outpoured to us, if God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that was how he showed his love. As Paul said again, marvellous words, he said, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, he felt that the love of God to him and the love of Christ to him was specifically shown through the blood of Christ. And so as we behold the blood of the, the cross of Christ, if we really believe what happened there, if we believe that there sin was condemned, that there the devil was killed, says in Hebrews 2, if we really believe that, well then it's going to be all joy and all peace through believing. I mean, if we as, as a group of brothers and sisters here, if we as ecclesias, individuals, fellowships, whatever, if we all could believe 100% certainly that we would be in the kingdom, what people we'd be, what fellowship we'd have, if you really believe that if Christ is coming now you'll be in the kingdom, what peace, it's as if you're on eagle wings of spirit, far above this, this life. You're looking down at this other man inside you that's living out the grief of this life, the difficulties of employment, children or whatever, sickness, or all these things which deny us peace. As we say, Christ didn't come and say, well, here's a magic formula to get rid of all that. But he said, I've come to give you peace, not as this world gives it. In conclusion, I'd like us to look at that verse that was read in the, um, uh, by Luke in Philippians 4 about peace. In fact, there's two verses about peace in Philippians 4 I'd like to talk about. First of all, Philippians 4 verse 9. Paul says, Those things which you've both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, the God of peace shall be with you. In other words, he's saying, I'm a working model, Paul says, for a man who's at peace with God. What you've seen in me and how you've seen me live, you do that, and the God of peace will be with you as well. But that's why I so love those passages at the end of the Acts of the Apostles, where there he is, an old boy, you know, on trial for his life, and he can look back and say, I have striven to live in good conscience before God and before men until this day. Day by day, when he lost his temper at times, when he just got indifferent to his relationship with God, and I think indifference is the worst spiritual sin we can commit. Um, time and again. He didn't just leave it to the end of the day like we do and say, oh dear God, forgive me for all the things I've done wrong today. No. 
you can imagine him fighting all the time for that good conscience, turning back to God, hour by hour at times. Like with us, you're driving along and you think something bad. You can pray with your eyes open to get yourself straight with God, to maintain that peace with God, to keep it there. And Paul is holding himself up as a working model, as a supreme example of this. So you think of him before his, his baptism. As Christ said, the, the goads of those uh, staves, as it were, digging in his conscience to bring him back. And then surrendering to the peace of God, baptism. I sort of imagine him in my mind's eye, coming up out of that water. The water streaming down his face, and all over his hair and in his eyes. And somehow the fire in his eyes as he stood there, absolutely dedicated now to this life of peace with God, now that he'd submitted to those pulls on his conscience, and how, as he could say in Acts at the end of his life, he had gone right through keeping that good conscience. And at the end, when he's writing here, um, from Rome to the Philippians, he can say, I've lived a life of peace with God. Now you can follow me. He didn't have peace in this world, did he? Shipwrecked, abused, uh, we tend to think he was sort of the wonder boy of the, the first century ecclesias, but it sounds like he was abused and uh, disliked by most of the brethren and sisters at the end of his life. Constantly bullied, constantly uh, misquoted and uh, completely misunderstood. And yet he can say, I've had so much peace in my life, you follow my example. And then the other verse I'd like to comment on is verse 7. The peace of God which passeth all understanding... The peace of God passes your peace. I'm giving you 